Amen. I hope you are still with us. And for those of you who are able to, to get back on, thank you for being patient. Thank you for wanting to, to be committed to hearing God's Word and joining us together virtually in worship today. Uh, we are thankful. We're thankful for technology when it works, and we're thankful that even when it doesn't work, to be able to get back up and running uh, we know God is good even when life is hard. In fact, that has been the theme of this series all along that we've been looking at in the book of Genesis. It's uh, entitled, Trusting the Goodness of God. Uh, and that's what we have to learn today. That's what Joseph had to learn throughout his life. That's what Jacob learned, as we're going to see in today's text, throughout his life was learning to trust the goodness of God. Today's message is entitled, Finishing Well. Finishing Well. Here's what I've learned as I've gotten older, and maybe you have discovered the same principle is true for your life and really in the world, and that is this. It's much easier to start something than it is to finish. Even this morning, it's easier to start something than it is to finish. And, and there's lots of reasons why. We don't understand uh, all the reasons, but you probably know what I mean. It's, it's really easy to start a project in school or at work but it's a lot harder to get that project finished and submitted on time. Finishing well is hard. Some of you are graduates, and you are preparing to graduate, or maybe you've already graduated, but even the most studious among us know that, uh, that when, when, you're, when you reach that senior year, um, you contract what scientists have, have determined is called senioritis. Uh, and it's this phenomenon, it's this illness that it's hard to finish your senior year strong. Something kicks in and it, and it becomes really difficult. Uh, whether And even for me, I'm an overachiever. And, he, and I fell into senioritis, whether in high school or college. It happens to the best of us. Whether it's a project at home, you got all the tools, you got a plan, you're working hard. But the, the longer the project, the harder it is for you to push through and finish in a timely manner. Kids at school, you're homeschooling, you're working hard at the beginning of the day, you're cranking out math and English, but by the end of the afternoon or the morning, wherever you're doing, it gets hard to finish. When you're running a race or in any kind of sport, you start off strong, but towards the end, it takes a tenacity, a determination to finish well. Here's the thing, that principle is at work in our lives spiritually. When we start following Jesus, we're thrilled, right? We're thrilled that God would save someone like me. And we want to tell everyone we know we found forgiveness and, and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we're devouring God's word and we're, we're praying earnestly. But the years go by. Life begins to beat us up. The journey is hard. And all of a sudden we find that we lose that zeal. You see, no matter what sphere of life we're talking about, finishing well is hard. If you've been tracking with us, you know that Jacob's life has been full of ups and downs. He struggled with deception, insecurity, longing for the love of his father, the grief of losing what he thought was losing his son Joseph. For decades he thought he was dead. Years of famine. And now we've come to the end of Jacob's life. How will Jacob finish the race that God had set before him? What is his perspective as he looks back on his life and as he looks ahead to what is to come? Finishing well, here's my big idea. Finishing well is possible when you have a growing faith. 
Finishing well is possible when you have a growing faith. You see, as you continue to grow in faith, as you continue to let God build that faith in your heart, you will run the race and by God's grace, you will finish well. Let's look at how Jacob's faith grew, even in the final days of his life. Lesson number one, faith grows by looking back at God's faithfulness. Faith grows by looking back at God's faithfulness. Genesis 47, verse 29. It says, Jacob knew he was dying. His body is breaking down. He's nearly blind. His life is coming to an end. He had the privilege of living in Egypt for the last 17 years. He's living in the good part of the land of Goshen. He, he's, he's, he's protected from the famine and his family, his entire family is living in harmony in Egypt. All because of Joseph, his son. Joseph had to struggle and he had struggled as a young boy with immaturity. And it led his brothers to hate and despise him. It even led them to sell him off to Egypt as a slave and then lie to their dad about him being dead. Joseph experienced all kinds of suffering in prison as a slave over decades of life. And yet after many painful trials, Joseph now understands that in spite of the evil done to him, God was sovereignly working all things out for his good and for the salvation of his family. And Jacob, now knowing that his life is coming to an end, calls Joseph to his bed. And he asks Joseph to make an oath. And he says, I want you to make this unbreakable promise that when I die, you will take my body back to the land of Canaan, back to the promised land and bury me there. Jacob wanted to be buried in the land that God had promised his ancestors and him. He wanted to be buried in his home country. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. One of the things that amazes me about our military is the conviction that they have that we will do everything we can to bring back every man or woman who dies serving their country. Think of all the resources that it takes to be able to bring those members back, those servicemen and women back here and to bring their bodies and to transport them. And, and, and often the president himself will stand waiting for them to be brought off the plane so he could salute these men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Why do we as a nation work so hard to do this? It's because there's something special about being buried in your own country. There's something special about being brought home, even your body after you die. That's what Jacob wanted. But for him, it was much deeper than just being buried in his home country. It was about being in the, buried in the land that God has specifically promised to him and his ancestors. And Joseph vows, vows to his father, I will do it. I will take your body. I will do what you've asked me to do. And then Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he, and he, and he brings them before his father, and Joseph, again, dying, his eyes are dim, it says. He kind of gets up out of bed one last time. And interestingly, he begins to recount to Joseph the story of God's faithfulness to him. He knows he's about to bless Joseph's two sons, but he doesn't start with the blessing. He starts by looking back, not looking ahead. This is Jacob's final reflection of his life. And he mentions two events that sum up his life. The first he says, is when God Almighty appeared to him 
at loves. You notice that at the beginning of chapter 48. He says, God Almighty, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz. And he, and he confirmed his blessing to me, the blessing he gave to my father and my grandfather. And he confirmed to, to, make a, to, make this, to make this family into a great nation, to bless us. And he confirmed to me that this land, the land of Canaan, would be our eternal possession. Listen, God didn't make a covenant with Abraham and his descendants because they were more deserving than any other nation. They weren't. It was sheer grace. The fact that God confirmed his covenant with Jacob, who was a deceiver, should prove that very point. It's all of grace. Jacob knew that. That's why he's saying, I I stand in awe that when I, I even wrestled with God all night and God overcame me and I realized... I can trust God. He is faithful. The second event that Jacob mentions is actually a painful one. It's the death of his beloved wife, Rachel, Joseph's mother. And I think this is a really, really um, down-to-earth way that Jacob uh, wrestles as he talks about his past. He mentions God's faithfulness, but he mentions the pain of his life. And this is how we live our lives, isn't it? In the tension of God's promises and the reality of living in a broken world. Jacob doesn't minimize his pain, but he also doesn't minimize God's faithfulness. And yet, this is an indication of his profound faith that Jacob wants to pass on God's blessing to his grandchildren. Even though he had not seen God promise much of what he had said to Jacob, he knew, he was convinced that God was faithful. In verse 15 and 16 of chapter 48, look at that again. Jacob makes this beautiful declaration. He says, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a beautiful blessing? May the God who has walked with me shepherded me and redeemed me from all evil. May that God bless you now, boys. Can I ask you, Christian, can you say for your own life, as you look back at all that you've been through, can you say, God has been my shepherd every step of the way? Even to this very day, can you say that? God has walked with you through all the mountaintop experiences, whether it was graduation or, or, your, or a wedding or the birth of a child or a new home or a move to a new city or a promotion. Can you say, God has been my shepherd in those seasons, in those times, and the same God has walked with me into the valleys, into the dark valleys when, when you lost your job, when that person walked out of your life, When you got sick unexpectedly, when you lost that loved one, when you look back on your life, can you see, can you literally see God's faithfulness walking with you and redeeming you from all evil? Can you say, God has redeemed me from all evil? You may not know how he will do it. You may not know what that looks like. But are you convinced that one day God will show you that he has been redeeming you? He has been rescuing you. He has been transforming you from all the evil of this world and of your life. 
when you can look back on your life with this perspective, when you can see God's faithfulness, when you can say like Jeremiah who looked upon Jerusalem when it was, uh, it was shattered and broken up and he mourned it and yet in the midst of it he says, God, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you believe that? Your faith will grow to the degree that you can look back and acknowledge God's faithfulness every step of your life. Lesson number two. Faith grows as we acknowledge God's ways are not our ways. Faith grows as we acknowledge God's ways are not our ways. Did you catch what happened here? Joseph presents his two sons to be blessed by his father, and he specifically places Manasseh at the right hand, the oldest, the position of honor, to receive the firstborn blessing from Jacob. But shockingly, when Jacob goes to bless the two sons of Joseph, he crosses his hands. It literally says, he crosses his hands and places his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. Joseph is angry at what happened. He actually gets upset with his father. He says, Father, you, no, 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 you made a mistake. Why did you do that? This is the firstborn. He's the one who gets the greater blessing. And he forcibly removes his father's hands to try to place them on the different heads. But he won't accept it. Jacob won't accept it. Jacob says, no, I've not made a mistake. You see, from Joseph's perspective, Jacob has betrayed a deeply held tradition in the ancient Near East. And that is this. The firstborn gets the special blessing. Joseph thinks his father made a mistake. But Jacob knows what he's doing. Verse 19, look at that. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. In other words, the younger will be greater than the older, although both tribes will be great and powerful, as we will yet see in Israel's future. Jacob crossed his hands, and that was an act of faith. It had taken him a lifetime of discipline, of God's discipline, to learn this important truth. God's ways are not our ways. Jacob had deceived his own blind father when he was younger to steal the firstborn blessing from Esau. Isaac had intended to bless Esau against God's express wishes. Jacob would not try to, 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 to bless the wrong one as his father tried to do. He knew that God wanted the younger son to receive the firstborn blessing, and he was simply God's messenger. That's why it was an act of faith. In fact, did you know, of all the things that Jacob did in his life, all the kind of mountaintop experiences, all the times when you're like, okay, that's an amazing faith right there. That's, that, that must be the epitome of faith. Did you know it is this moment right here, that in Hebrews 11, when it goes to the hall of faith of the patriarchs, when it describes, here's how each one lived by faith and acted by faith. Did you know it is this moment that the New Testament confirms Jacob was acting by faith? Notice it says in Hebrews eleven twenty one, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship of the head of his staff. 
what this teaches us is that even God's grace, even God's grace doesn't have, it doesn't go to those who have status or privilege or, or those who expect it or those who achieve it. God's grace does not, does not run in that kind of sphere. God's grace operates on a totally different playing field, one where the, the first actually becomes last and the last becomes first. One where the foolish are chosen to shame the wise. One where the weak become strong. And this is good news for all of us because it means no one is beyond God's grace. This is God's sovereign grace to you and I that, that is really good news because it means messed up people like you and I, we don't have to earn it. We can't achieve it. We don't have to have a certain status or privilege to have it. We are simply needy people and we receive it by faith. By faith. Because God is gracious and merciful and unfailingly loving. And that same principle applies with how Jacob blesses the rest of his sons in Genesis 49. Notice that. The rest of Genesis 49 is Jacob blessing all of his sons now. He adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own children. They actually become tribes of the nation of Israel. He adopts them as his own. And now Jacob gathers the rest of his sons and he blesses them from oldest to youngest. Now some blessings don't seem much, like much of a blessing to be sure. But the overall thrust of this chapter is Jacob blessing each son to be part of God's covenant people. Notice verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn. He honors him for this. And yet because of his sexual immorality, he does not receive the firstborn blessing. Simeon and Levi are taken together because they, they proved to be ruthless and violent men who massacred their enemies as an act of revenge for what they had done to their sister Dina. Their tribes, Jacob says, will be scattered. Next comes Judah. Judah. We'll, come, we'll say that for the end because that's a special one. After that, he talks about Zebulun. He says, Zebulun will prosper through trade by the sea. Issachar will settle in a fertile land. But as laborers, Dan will be a tribe known for justice, though not strong, dangerous. Gad will be skillful warriors as they fend off their enemies. Asher will be rich and will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali will grow and flourish like a doe let loose. Joseph, finally, is one of the longest blessings. This makes sense because his sons receive a double portion of blessing. Jacob references, in talking to Joseph, he references God as the mighty one, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And he says, the Almighty will bless your two sons and their descendants, Joseph. He says, God will be their defender, marking the descendants of Joseph as being greatly blessed, abundantly blessed by God. Benjamin, finally, he says, is a ravenous wolf, uh, meaning he, his descendants will be mighty warriors, which they will. But not to, uh, now, surprisingly, we'll go back, the greatest blessing is actually reserved for Judah, the fourthborn. I say surprisingly because the fourthborn is usually a nobody. Not only that, it, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph off into slavery those years ago. He was the one who engaged in sexual immorality with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar. In other words, Judah's life was a mess. And yet, God had been graciously working in his heart 
to bring him to the point where after years of sinfulness, after years of selfishness, Judah stood before Joseph, who was second in command of Egypt. And when Joseph said, you all have done wrong, I'm going to take Benjamin as my slave, you all go home, Judah steps up and says, no, we cannot do this again. And he didn't know it was Joseph, but he says, listen, take my life instead of my brother's. I will be a substitute for my younger brother, Benjamin. He's willing to exchange his life for his brother. You see, God was redeeming Judah. And in God's providence, the firstborn was going to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Look at it, it says in verse 8. Your brothers will praise you. Genesis 49, verse 8. Your brothers will praise you. They'll bow down to you. In the future, Judah will be known for its leadership. Verse 9, your descendants will be powerful. And then he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. What's that about? The scepter is actually a symbol of royalty and kingship. This is clearly a messianic prophecy. It is, it is predicting this future king, this chosen one, this special person who will be a king from the tribe of Judah. But not just any king. Notice what it says at the end of verse 10. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. All the peoples? And then verse 11 and 12 describe the prosperity of Judah. Judah will usher in the dawn of a new age where there will be abundance in the land. Many years later, a son of Judah would come. His name is David. And he would take up the mantle as one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. He would prosper, and, and under him, the whole nation would prosper to some degree. But even he would not have the obedience of all the people. There was no other king in the royal line of Judah who would be able to do this until Jesus enters the world. You see, Jesus enters the world unassumingly, but he's from the tribe of Benjamin. If you read the account in Matthew 1, you see, he's, I'm sorry, he's from the tribe of Judah. In fact, Revelation 5.5 calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's right from this passage. Jesus is the king that Jacob prophesies here. He will command the obedience of all people. He will, uh, later it talks about uh, the, the, the garments and wine. He will actually turn water into wine at the, at the wedding of Cana using jars that were meant for washing. Again, drawn right from this prediction. He will ride into Jerusalem on a foal of a donkey right here from this prediction again. He will usher in a kingdom of unparalleled prosperity. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Jacob saw in Judah's line and so much more. And yet this lesson still proves true. God's ways are not our ways. Jesus will demonstrate his power and authority, not by simply taking up a scepter as a king, which he will. He will actually do it by laying it down, by taking, stepping off of his heavenly throne and coming to earth as a servant. He will give up his glory and suffer everything that you and I have to suffer here on earth, and he will go to the cross dying the death that you and I should have died, bearing all of our guilt for sin. Jesus takes our death. He's the king that becomes a servant and he bears all of God's judgment against our sin. And then he rises from the dead victoriously, proving that he's not just the king that was predicted here. He is actually the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
This is the gospel in Genesis. Good news is coming. That's what Jacob is predicting. That's what Genesis is screaming. Good news is coming. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. There's one coming, uh, the seed of Eve, who's going to crush the enemy. And Jacob now says, it's coming through the line of Judah, a Messiah, a king, who will lead us and usher us in to a great kingdom. God's ways are not our ways. They never thought, Israel never thought that would happen through Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, a nobody, almost as much as Judah is as a fourthborn. Listen, is there something in your life that doesn't make sense right now? I get it. I get it. There's a lot going on in our lives that don't make sense. There's a lot happening right now in our world, and in our families, and in our personal lives that just do not make sense. And I would say this, grieve those things. It's normal to grieve. It's appropriate to grieve. Cry out to God. We've talked about these things. Share your burdens with others. But I also want to say this, as you acknowledge that, as you, as you walk through the grief, acknowledge that God is doing something that you and I could never understand or explain. Acknowledge that God's ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, that he is much great, wiser and greater than we could ever imagine. That he can bring beauty out of ashes. That he can, that he can shine light into darkness. That he can raise the dead. As we walk in faith, as our faith grows, we will, we will be able to finish well. As we look to God whose ways are not our ways. Lesson number three. Faith grows when we're convinced God will keep his promises. After blessing all of his sons, it says in verse 29, Genesis 49, 29, that Jacob actually commanded his sons to take his body back to Canaan and to be buried with his father's. Notice, this is where he started this whole speech to begin with, with Joseph. Take my body back to be buried. And now at the end of this long speech, take my body back to be buried in the promised land. Can you see how important this is to Jacob? He started with Joseph promising, and now he's commanding all of his sons to do this. Why is he so adamant about this one thing? Is it because he's just old and stubborn? No. Jacob was convinced that God had promised the land of Canaan to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac, to him, and to his descendants. And although it seems like God is taking a sweet old time in fulfilling this promise, Jacob is absolutely convinced God will one day fulfill his promise. And his dying wish is to be buried in the land that will one day belong to God's people. Jacob breathes his last breath, not having seen the fulfillment of this promise. He died waiting. He died waiting in faith. He came to the final stretch of his earthly race, tired and beat up by life. But he didn't give up. As he looked back on God's faithfulness, as he looked up to the God whose ways are not our ways. And now as he looked ahead to the future at God's promises, he marveled at God's providence. 
He trusted God's promises. And that final stretch, he pressed on knowing there was a prize greater than anything he could imagine. The author of Hebrews tells us this. It says, speaking of the patriarchs, who died believing the promises of God. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're speaking of a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, they would have never had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their, to be their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They were convinced God will keep his promises, but they had to wait. They had to wait. What about you? Waiting is hard, isn't it? What are you waiting for? A cure? A reconciliation? The end of this pandemic? The ability to gather again? Freedom from a particular sin? These are all good things to wait for. But at the deepest level, I want to ask you, are you waiting? Are you longing? Are you, are, you, are you running, waiting for this to happen? That Jesus will come back and fulfill his promise to, to, to restore the kingdom and take you home to be with him? Are you waiting for Jesus to welcome you in his presence where we met earlier, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? When you come to the end of your life, can you say, like Andrew sang earlier, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Christian faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God will do it. Even if the journey seems hard and long, don't stop running. Don't stop believing and don't lose hope. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we know he will ensure that our faith will grow and will sustain us. And God is faithful. He will keep his promises. One day he will make all things new. And we know that because the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that. Only a growing faith will make it possible for you to finish well. If you're not a Christian, would you admit right now that you are longing, that there's something in your heart that longs to know that when you come to the end of your life, there will still be life after death? Don't you long for a life that overcomes death? Jesus offers that kind of life. Jesus is that life. And he promises life even in death. And it doesn't come from being a good person. It doesn't come from following the Ten Commandments. It doesn't come from going to church. It comes from confessing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and trusting in Jesus as your Savior and your King. And I encourage you to do that today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're crying out to you all around this area, where people are in their homes, watching from a tablet or a phone or the computer, in the midst of a pandemic that still continues to plague us, it, it would seem so easy for us to just stop running, Lord, to not live by faith, to coast, to take a break. But Lord, we don't want to do that. 
We want to finish well. We want to keep running this race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, help us to have a growing faith so that when we come to the end of our days, whether that's today or years from now, that we might come to the end of our days and say with Jacob, I'm still looking to God to fulfill his promises. I still believe he will fulfill every promise that he has made. God, we love you. (laughs) We desperately need you. Technology can fail us. People can fail us. We can fail ourselves. Many of us even right now might feel like a failure. Lord, Lord, we live in strange times. But we trust you. We trust that when you peel back the curtain one day, you will show us how you have been making all things new. And it will prove how glorious you are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.